And when I was gone last week, Jennifer Thomas preached on Acts 2, 1 through 13. In that passage, as she so eloquently broke down for us, the disciples were waiting. Jesus had risen from the grave, had appeared to them multiple times, and then he tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of power. And so they waited and they prayed, about 120 of them altogether, until the day Pentecost came, nearly 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, nearly 10 days after his ascension into heaven. On Pentecost, the the Spirit of God came down upon the disciples in a familiar form, if you read your Old Testament, wind and fire. But this time, that presence didn't just come around them, and it didn't just come onto one person like Uh, giving them a specific task like a Moses or a Deborah or a Samson or a David. It filled all of them, all the people who had placed their faith in Jesus. And what did this power of God accomplish in them? Did it raise up a judge like Samson who would overthrow the Roman Empire? Did it raise up a king like David who would lead the people to victory over their oppressors? Did the power of God raise up a leader like Moses who would lead the people into a renewed spiritual revival? No, of course not. The Spirit of God rested on the disciples of Jesus and filled them to overflowing, not to give them superpowers to defeat their enemies, but or to further draw lines in the sand. The Spirit of God fell upon these disciples primarily to unite them. There, gathered in Jerusalem, were Jewish pilgrims representing the diaspora, the forced scattering of Jewish people throughout the Roman Empire. They were scattered and displaced because of centuries of war and conquest and captivity. But rather than giving these people a a physical land, the Spirit of God brought them together on the day of Pentecost by speaking to them in their heart language. So these disciples were speaking, but the Holy Spirit gave them power to speak in languages of the pilgrims. Pilgrims from the Middle East and pilgrims from Egypt, pilgrims from Rome, pilgrims from Syria and Greece and modern-day Turkey. Now here's an important detail. What words were these disciples actually speaking? If the Spirit went to all that trouble to empower them to speak these foreign languages, to unify the people, what did they actually say? Did they start on the grounds of secular humanism? Dear brothers and sisters, we are here to inform you that we may be from distant lands, but we are one humanity. Our humanity makes us one. Did they start on the grounds of science? Dearest Homo sapiens, we may look different and speak different tongues, but our DNA makes us one species unite. Did they start with the common ground of political motivation? Dear fellow dispersed Israelites, our enemies have scattered us throughout the world, but hear us now. God is giving us one voice, one tongue to band together and overthrow our enemies. Of course, you know, whenever I say, did they do this? The answer is no. Acts chapter 2, verse 11 says, We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. What 
did they talk about when they got this language ability? The mighty deeds of God. And in context, these mighty deeds of God are Jesus. The incarnation of Jesus, Jesus, the sacrifice of God for the sins of the world, Jesus, the resurrection and vindication of God over his enemies, Jesus, the ascension and enthronement of God's agent, the mighty deeds of God's faithfulness in the person and ministry of Jesus. That's what they talked about with Holy Spirit power, speaking languages to the dispersed Jewish pilgrims. They were doing, notice, I think Jennifer mentioned this as well, they were doing what Jesus said would happen. Wait, the Spirit will come in power, and I'll make you my witnesses. Did you ever hear mightier witnesses? Well, I've heard a lot of mighty witnesses. But that's a pretty good start to being a witness to Jesus. But of course, it wasn't all smooth sailing. Some of the pilgrims were impressed with the ministry or, or with the ability of the Galileans to speak in their heart language, but others, who were probably not as close to the stage, maybe, uh, couldn't hear quite as well, maybe thought they heard some slurring of speech and said, these dudes are just drunk. And that's where we pick up the story. Right at the point where somebody yells out, these bozos are full of sweet wine. Would you stand with me? So we read Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 40. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed of my words. For these men are not drunk, not as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my Spirit on all humanity, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men will see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit. They shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord. And it shall be, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. By the hands of godless men, you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David even says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he's at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo, undergo decay. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, sistren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath that the one of his descendants on the throne 
he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we're all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make you uh, make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. Leonard Streets, that's us too. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your servant, Peter, who in the power of your spirit, found a supernatural boldness to stand and proclaim the good news, the apostolic witness that we continue to declare to this day. Lord, let this be more than information or a history lesson, but may the truth of this good news convict us, penetrate us, and cause us to embrace the new life of Christ in a deeper way than we have before. Amen. Be seated. Good on you for sitting through a very long passage. It's sort of amusing that the first sermon by a spirit-filled Christian was a response to someone thinking he's drunk. Ever think about that? I just think it's funny. There you are on the most significant day of your life. I'm sure Peter's marriage, wedding day was right up there. I mean, the Holy Spirit coming, that's pretty amazing, right? It's the, this massive thing that's never happened before. Uh, the Spirit of God has come and taken up residence in you and your friends as you've been saying, staying up in the upper room praying together or in the temple. You burst forth with good news. You're empowered to speak people's heart languages, languages you didn't even know 10 minutes ago. pouring your heart out about the works of God, but there's always one in every crowd, isn't there? Somebody with cognitive dissonance that just can't seem to let go of their old beliefs so they can hear this new thing that's going on, even if, though it's happening right in front of them, and so they're accusing you of being drunk. How would you respond to that? You know, I, I would be tempted to just go with empirical evidence. Okay, let's do a breathalyzer right here. Or field sobriety test. I, I'll do all the stuff. This is the Holy Spirit. I'd, I would want to give God the credit. I would want to say, no, 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 I'm not drunk. This amazing thing is happening right now. I know what I probably wouldn't do. Quote some old Hebrew prophet like Joel. <laughs> but that's exactly what Peter does. 
Well, first he mentions, come on, guys, it's like 9 o'clock in the morning. So he does go some empirical kind of anecdotal evidence. But he's not trying to be funny. He's not saying it's not even beer 30 yet. He's just saying it's, it's early. But Peter's fully aware that what is going on isn't ordinary. In fact, it had never happened in this way before. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't make any sense. As crazy as it looked, as crazy as it sounded, the coming of the Spirit was taking place uh, in a way that uh, Israel had been looking forward to since the time of the prophets. And it's at this point that I, I just want to pause for a minute, just kind of step away from the sermon and tell you where I'm going this evening. Several years ago, I preached on this very text. Um, we pretty much did it word for word, expository style. Uh, if you're interested in like, hey, I forget what the blood and fire stuff is about, I can give you the manuscript or you can email me and I'll send you to the podcast that we have recorded of that day. Um, it was an okay sermon, so I'm not, I'm not worried about giving it out to you. But I want to do something a little bit different today. In a world of, of competing voices that we live with, from marketers to social media, I think it's profoundly important for us to consider what makes an authoritative communication versus an opinion? What makes for gospel truth over and against fake news or even a well-thought-out TED Talk? As truthful as those might be, is that the same thing as Scripture? Here in this passage, it struck me this week as I was preparing, that we have the very first sermon preached by a follower of Jesus after the ascension and after the coming of the Holy Spirit. It is the very first apostolic sermon by the first apostolic preacher. And until Jesus returns in glory, this sermon has all the marks of a spirit-filled sermon. Marks that form the standard, I think, for preaching that is authoritative versus preaching that is mere ear candy or someone's best advice. Okay. So Now, I'd be lying to you if I wasn't somewhat intimidated by choosing to go this route. I almost didn't. Because by going this route, I am inherently standing in front of you critiquing every sermon I've ever preached and every sermon I will preach if I think that this is some of the right elements right, in preaching. I'd be on much safer ground just unpacking it verse by verse and then wrapping it up in a bow and saying, love Jesus, peace out, enjoy the snow. But pastoral ministry, I, I just need you to hear this in case you have these false illusions about who I am or what pastors are. Pastoral ministry is always about discipleship. It's about my discipleship just as much as it is yours. And the way I see it is we're a family, we're a community, we grow together. You better not want a pastor that's done growing, right? And I don't want a church that's done growing. So let's do this together. We're just going to keep growing together. And we're going to look at the marks of what it means to preach spirit-filled, or what are the elements of a spirit-filled sermon. So if you're a note-taker, and even if you're not, I suggest you did. This would be a good sermon for note-taking. There's five marks of a spirit-filled sermon. You can write these down. Uh, I'll point them out as we go along. But the first mark of a spirit-filled sermon or spirit-filled preaching is that it's rooted in Scripture. Rooted in Scripture. We already noted how something entirely new had taken place on Pentecost. And in, in all of its newness, it might have been tempting for Peter, with all of his 
braggadocious personality that we've seen in the Gospels, right? It might have been tempting for him to get up and preach about this new thing that God is doing in him and in all of his 120 friends and the people that were with Jesus. How the Holy Spirit had given them power and authority to call the shots and to demand people's allegiance. Peter could have also started with insider knowledge, quoting late night conversations I had with the Lord because I was one of the inner three. And he told us that this was going to happen. And so if you want to know more about it, just come hang out with our group because we'll tell you all about it from our own personal experience we had with Jesus around late night campfire talks. But spirit-filled preachers don't draw attention primarily to themselves on the base, as the basis of authority. Okay? Being Holy Spirit-filled means a keen awareness of one's true self. Always a mixture, every one of us is a mixture of two truths. On the one hand, I and you are incredibly loved by God. Unique, precious, priceless, no one else is like you, no one else is like me. Got to remember that truth. That's real. On the other hand, I know my thoughts, my feelings, I know what I've done. I know the things that I sometimes think of doing that are not good. You know the ones in you too. And so we, we, we live with this teaching. And I think a spirit-filled person is, oh, is self-aware. Self-aware. Less than two months prior to this event, Peter had betrayed, denied Jesus three times, guys. Just two months. Yes, Jesus had restored him, but Peter seems to have known better than to preach and teach based solely on his own experience. And so he points people to the scriptures. He makes sense of the contemporary reality that's going on, all of this crazy stuff in these tongues and languages, by referencing the sovereignty of God and the promises of God and the faithfulness of God as it is found in the scriptures. Notice that even though the Spirit falling on the disciples was a new thing in salvation history, Peter's sermon is kind of a riff off of the ancient message of the prophets. We, pastors, teachers, preachers, Sunday school teachers, people talking about Jesus at all, we are not authorized by our own credentials, in our own inherent wisdom, or even just merely in our own experiences. We are authorized by the Spirit and the apostolic witness. So any preaching that depends upon charisma, humor, polish, presentation, over and above the content of the gospel is lacking. It, even in the sermon that, that, that relies more on a Star Wars quote than the scriptures is lacking. Now, I, I love a Star Wars quote and a Lord of the Rings, and I like to be funny when I can be. I'm not always very good at it. But that should never take the place of the scriptures. should never be... I, I would hope that when you hear... Good preaching, you don't just remember the funny story, but maybe what the funny story was illustrating, right? The scriptures. Today, and when I say this, I mean our culture in general, is obsessed with credentials and information. But remember, Peter was a fisherman, not formally educated. John and James were fishermen. Matthew was a tax collector. It wasn't their education that made these disciples effective apostles. They were effective apostles because of the power of the Spirit, and their message was rooted in Scripture. That's where the authority comes from. Now, hear me loud and clear. You know me, what, 
for Garrett, but, but those of you who know me, you know I'd be the last person to say education is not important. The Apostle Paul was one of the most educated men of his day. What I am saying is that spirit-filled preaching isn't dependent on the preacher. The reason we need scholarship to preach today isn't because the gospel is somehow more complicated now than it used to be. It isn't because the problems of the world are more complicated than they used to be. The reason is because we are so far removed now from the language and culture and philosophy and assumptions of the first century apostles that I literally need a master's degree to, to understand the language that Peter was born and raised to understand as a fisherman. I literally need classes in philosophy and ancient thought and what it was like in the first century so that I can exegete a text to then relate it to this culture. And every time we read the English Bible, we're dependent on scholars who spent their whole lives figuring out language and culture and grammar and, and things like that so that we could have a good translation. Right? It's hard to translate. Make no mistake. Spirit-filled preaching is always rooted in the sacred text, not in the charisma or the education of the vessel. So in this first Christian sermon, we see Peter dip into the well of the prophet Joel to show that the events happening on Pentecost might have been surprising, but it should never have been unexpected. Joel describes a time when Yahweh would pour out his spirit on all people that he has chosen. And this would be the beginning of the end of the age, the time of God's reign, the time of God's salvation breaking into history. In fact, in his first sermon, Peter references three passages from the Hebrew Scriptures, Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. He does this not to provide some flimsy biblical support to something else he already wanted to talk about. That's important. He quotes these scriptures because they give an authoritative explanation for what is happening in their day and age. So the scriptures are living and active. And for the spirit-filled practitioner or parent or Sunday school teacher or friend or neighbor, right? the scriptures are always in season. And they have something vital to say about every day and every age. So I ask you to consider, if spirit-filled preaching is rooted in Scripture, shouldn't spirit-filled living be rooted in Scripture as well? When you're struggling, like I know we all do when we read the news, when you're struggling to, to figure out, to make sense of our day and age, where do you most naturally turn to get your understanding? The great American preacher Fleming Rutledge says she starts her mornings with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Now, judging by the flood of social media posts I see by many Christians that I know on a regular basis, I wonder if maybe we favor our news sources while neglecting our scriptures as authority. So just consider rhetorically, what role do the scriptures play in your life? The second mark of spirit-filled preaching is that it is always focused on Jesus. Whether your text is Genesis or anything in between to Revelation, spirit-filled preaching exalts Jesus as creator, savior, and the fulfillment that everything scripture is ever pointing at. 
Now, you've heard me preach through Hebrew, the Hebrew text. We do every fall. We were in 1 Samuel. Those stories in 1 Samuel stand by themselves because God of yesterday is the God of today. He's not changing. But in every one of those passages, you can also see hints of how Jesus fulfills the longings and desires of those stories. Right? That's what I'm talking about. Now, notice that before the Holy Spirit filled Peter, he was still leading in that first groups of disciples. He even led from the scriptures, as you could see for yourself in Acts chapter 1, 15 through 26. But back there, there's a different quality to his approach. In his first speech, Peter talks about maintaining the status quo. His reference is a response to Judas. He's responding to death and betrayal. He's trying to get back to the way things used to be, trying to get back to 12 apostles now that Judas had killed himself because of the treachery and guilt that he had against betraying Jesus. But now, watch this. After the gift of the Holy Spirit, Peter stops referencing Judas and the way things used to be and starts referencing Jesus. Jesus is the focus of the new thing. Jesus is the fulfillment of the old expectations and the ancient promises. So rather than focusing on the good old days or some ancient golden era before the crucifixion, Peter, filled with the Spirit, perceive, perceives that the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus is the point of preaching. Look at any of the apostolic preachers in the Bible or the New Testament letter writers, and you will see this deep commitment to expounding on the incarnation of Jesus and the sacrificial death of Jesus and the life-ushering resurrection of Jesus and the sovereign reign of Jesus and the promised return of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Spirit-filled preaching to point to Jesus. Not merely to the teachings of Jesus, as important as they are, and not primarily to the example of Jesus as worthy of imitation as he is. The gospel of of spirit-filled preaching is love for, adoration of, and allegiance to Jesus, the person. It, it bothers me to say that I have listened to and sat in on sermons in some well-known mega-Western churches with well-known pastors and teachers. And I've heard amazing stories and amazing illustrations, and even deep, deep moral truths, but I have sat through some and not once heard the name of Jesus. The truth of Jesus without the person of Jesus is empty. Call it the cart before the horse, or a jelly donut without the filling, or the office without Steve Carell. Without Jesus, our best words are just, they're just mere advice. They're empty. They ring hollow because there's no power to actually do them without the person of Jesus to help us. So third, the spirit-filled preaching is convicting. When you're rooted in the scriptures and when you deal with Jesus as a real person, you are inherently left with this kind of like holy dis-ease. Hmm. A feeling of dissatisfaction with the way the world is. And a, a feeling that, gosh, I'm somehow part of the problem. Right? Sometimes the conviction of Jesus is specific. 
and direct. I, I remember when Jesus got a hold of me as a young man, I was in a church with spirit-filled preaching, I was reading the scriptures on a regular basis, and, and I was convicted by Jesus and by the word with my attitude and the way I was relating to people and the things that I did with my free time and with my finances. It was a very, very specific season of my life where Jesus was just like, Hey, he was pointing these things out, like shining a spotlight into these dark areas. And and Jesus worked in and through the spirit and the word to convict and and challenge me and to bring me into a fuller way of living. But but sometimes conviction isn't necessarily something that says stop doing such and such or that is bad for you, right? Sometimes we're convicted that there is just more to life in Christ than what I'm experiencing right now. Conviction, whether it's aimed at stopping a sinful behavior or aimed at encouraging a fuller life, it's always aimed at two things. One is your best and my best. And unseparable from that is God's glory. Conviction is always aimed at your best and God's glory. And those things go together. Because God's glory is men and women fully alive. When you're at your best, you reflect his best. Why? Because of Genesis 1, 26 through 28. You and I are made in the image of God. When we're more like him, when we're more human, when we're more like we're made to be, we reflect his glory more. As you've encountered at Lettered Streets, where we preach most often right through books of the Bible, some weeks we're getting convicted from the scriptures about sexual ethics or racism or the use of finances So sometimes it's just like poking all of our buttons. And other times we're going through the prodigal son. We're like, he loves us. And and when you read through the counsel of scripture like that, you're going to get eventually hit on all sides. Why? That's why it's important to come to church consistently. So you hit all those things. Either way, the apostolic preaching convicts us about the life we're living and shows us the life of possibility in Christ that we could be living. Which leads me to the fourth mark of spirit-filled preaching. It's always, always good news. Most modern people, and I I would put myself in this category, are pretty fragile. We don't like to be told we're wrong. Most of us have an honorary doctorate degree in rationalization. We invent a world in which we're doing fine, pretty much, no matter what anyone else thinks. And that mentality can, can work to make us feel better in the short term, but in the long term, it's disastrous. So consider the doctor who tells you, you've got high cholesterol. And unless you change your diet and your exercise, you are at high risk for a heart attack. Now, if we apply our honorary doctorate of rationalization, we might say to ourselves, hmm, what would Oprah do, though? You know, you only live once. Enjoy life, carpe diem. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to live each day to the fullest. But is living with a ticking time bomb really living life to the fullest? Isn't it good news that the doctor not only warned you about the death to come, but also gave you a way forward to be healthy and whole? And at this stage, let's pretend it's without like anti-cholesterol medicine. That's, That's a bonus. Notice that in this passage in Acts, The people who received the Spirit were nobodies except followers of Jesus. The the priests, the Pharisees, 
the Sadducees, the scribes, they're not mentioned as receiving the Spirit. The religious leaders rejected Jesus because they didn't want to hear that they had anything to repent of. And by plugging their ears, they were stranded at that conviction that they might need the gospel. See, the good news of Jesus, his salvation, his love, his life in the Spirit is available to everyone, to, to, to women and men and slaves and free and Jews and Gentiles, even to religious leaders and to sin extraordinaires, boys and girls, everybody. It's available. The good news is that this life is available to all who repent and trust in Jesus. Will we allow the conviction of spirit-filled preaching to lead us to this good news of spirit-filled Jesus, a spirit-filled life? Which leads us to the fifth mark of spirit-filled preaching. It always implies a response. And I say implies rather than demands because if you look closely, Peter does not call people to respond. He does not have the proverbial altar call. He does not have people raise their hands if they want to receive Christ. Now, sometimes that's part of preaching. But if we look closely, we see that Peter points to Jesus, convicts of sin, offers good news, references the scriptures, and then it is the people who ask the disciples, the apostles, what do we do? They respond to the Spirit-filled preaching. The people respond to the initiative of the Spirit-filled message, and then Peter invites them to repent and be baptized, to turn around from their former allegiances, to be baptized in the waters of death and new life, the initiation rite of joining the family of God. On the surface, it might seem like all we have done today, you and me, is just to talk about Peter's sermon. But if you catch beneath, if you, if, if you scratch beneath this outward appearance, you'll have seen that we're rooted in the Scripture, that we've declared Jesus' crucifixion as God's plan for our, our redemption, Jesus' resurrection and ascension. We've heard the convicting words that our sin makes us complicit in Jesus' death. And we've heard good news that we're invited into his family. Whether for the first time or for the first time this hour, we're invited to respond to the good news through repentance and allegiance to Jesus. Pray with me.